Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Charles Larson's inside story of television murder. Someone's death. Starring George Kennedy. Joyce Boulafont. And Robert Reed. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Zero Hour. Sponsored in part by Ford Motor Company, Quaker State Motor Oil, and the makers of V8 Juice. This is The Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. As a producer of TV murder mysteries, Nils Frederick Blixen is cognizant of a formula. It goes something like this. A murder is committed and someone innocent accused. The viewer is introduced to several suspects and fed a steady diet of red herrings. One by one, the suspects are eliminated through lack of motive or a substantiated alibi. Finally, the real killer is exposed. And everyone lives happily ever after until next week. But News Frederick Blixen has found himself in the middle of a mystery he's been unable to predict, let alone solve. Three murders, a host of suspects, a jumble of clues, but no killer. If it were only a bad script, only make-believe. But it's not. It's all too terrifying and real. But somehow, from his working experience, News Frederick Blixen knows somewhere in his mind that the simple truth is right in front of him. The only question is, can he recognize it before it's too late? The conclusion of someone's death follows after this word. Young I may be, but still I'm a man. Just turned 18 and I'll do what I can. Find me a place where I can be me. Get ready for life. the new Navy. You'll get your chance of success, learn an exciting job, and see the world. Call toll-free 800-841-8000 or see your Navy recruiter. Be someone special in the new Navy. I know where I'm going from here. Mary McGrath murdered, victim number three. In the bedroom of her small home, the police found a partially packed red and black suitcase a round-trip airplane ticket to Chicago, and 10 $20 traveler's checks, but no murder weapon. By 1.30 in the afternoon, the authorities had finished their examination of the house and grounds, and the body had been removed to the morgue. 
Detectives continued to question residents along both sides of Willow Way, a steep, pretty street on the Glendale edge of Montrose, just off of Highway 2, the main route to La Cañada. When I met Ames at the morgue, he was fit to be tied. She was dead when my men checked the place yesterday, but none of them bothered to look in the kitchen window. I'm going to hold a few seminars on comprehensive investigation. Mr. Blixen? Yes. Yes, that's Mary. This is senseless. It's absolutely senseless. My mind really fights this. I know she's dead. I just can't accept it. This was a woman who didn't have an enemy in the world. I'd like to get some air. Tell me, Sergeant, had Mary been sexually attacked or robbed? No. I don't understand it. Well, she was shot with a 22. Same gun that killed Gladstone. What? Well, then, that clears red. Is that so? Why? Well, she's in custody, that's why. Oh, different fingers could pull the same trigger at different times, couldn't they? In any case, she's still being held on a double charge. It wasn't a 22 that killed Heidi. No, it wasn't. And that's got to be one of the weakest points of your case against her. Oh, really? Since when has an axe been a woman's weapon? Oh, since about Lizzie Borden. Oh, my God. Haven't you ever shaken hands with Red? I doubt if she could lift an axe much less... Look, Mr. Blixen, we don't know that an axe was used in the Ellis case. It was an axe-like weapon that could be pruning shears or a hatchet or a small hand hoe. Now, I'll be honest with you. Heidi Ellis died of shock and loss of blood. The wounds themselves weren't deep. A woman might easily have made them, even a weak woman. Incidentally, your, uh, your attorney, Mr. Schreiber, is in the building. He said he'd drive you home if you needed a lift. Yes. Yes, call him, please. And, and thank you. Yeah. I could scarcely breathe. Hand hoe, hand hoe. Where had I seen a hand hoe recently? I was barely aware of getting into the car with Wade Schreiber... Homebound traffic had begun to clog the freeways. Wade wanted to take the surface streets. I said anything was okay with me. Anything. You look beat, Nils. It's been one of those days. Listen, did you ever see Peter Laurie in M? What's Peter Laurie have to do with anything? M was the story of a child molester. Well, Heidi was a child. You think somebody was trying to... Heidi told me that she'd seen Dan Gladstone about a week before his death. She'd left school in the middle of the afternoon not feeling well. And Gladstone, she wouldn't tell me what he wanted or what he did. But it was clear from her attitude that something strange had happened. No, Gladstone has a record, but uh, molesting children wasn't part of it. Well, there's always a first time. Now, if Gladstone did try something funny, what have we got? Well, we've got a new case, a motive for murder on Heidi's part. Especially if Gladstone tried it a second time. Heidi may have thought first of blackmail and changed her mind. Yes, but who killed Heidi then? Who would want to kill Mary? Where does her death fit in all this? I don't know. Wait, I'm lost. Red was innocent. I knew it. But there were three people dead. What were we missing? 
Hello, this is Hugh Downs. Recently, I participated in a Ford LTD fuel economy run from Phoenix to Los Angeles, where the average for five cars was 18.8 miles per gallon with standard 351 V8 engines. The high was 20.3, and I averaged 19.7. My first reaction was surprise, because I think you'll agree the numbers sound a little high. So I'd like to stress that gas mileage depends on many factors. Things like total weight, maintenance, road and driving conditions, and you might not get the same results. But probably most important of all are your personal driving habits, how you behave when you drive. And one of the things we did in the test was to make a point of never exceeding 50 miles an hour. I think all of us who participated would agree that driving reasonably is a very modest price to pay for something else you can get from a Ford LTD. The good feeling of riding in a solid, well-made automobile. The quiet riding Ford. The closer you look, the better we look. We'll return to our story in a moment. Provide for their college. The safe and easy way. It's sure with payroll savings. Yeah, join that plan today. age 14 years, one month, and six days, was buried in Hollywood's Robindale Cemetery on Thursday, the 7th of June, at 11.15 in the morning. It had begun to drizzle shortly before nine, but the cemetery officials had prudently erected a canvas canopy over the small open grave during the night, and both the ground and the mourners remained dry. I recognized the pallbearers, Bobby Leeds and Rene Ortez, solemn, still not speaking, Fred Hayworth in an ancient black suit and pearl gray cowboy hat. Preston Andrade, the only man beside Wade Schreiber who wept openly. And Phil Waters. Surprisingly, only two women were present. Bum Bum Hayworth, looking like an ill gypsy. And a stout, pleasant-faced lady in a hooded raincoat who reminded me vaguely of Mary. As the young priest's comfortless voice droned on, I became aware that Wade Schreiber had left my side. I eased backward onto the wet grass and ascended the slope to join him. Oh, how sweet of you to come, Cherie. In fact, you're just the man we want to see. We need advice. Of course, Bobo. Anything I can do. You see, Phil lost his job at the drugstore. So, I thought, Jerry, with all the musicians this studio needs, uh, perhaps you could put in a good word, no? Oh. Um, why don't you have him come out to the studio? I'll send him to Derek Kirk, the head of music. Oh, fine. This afternoon, Phil can drive us. All right. All right. This afternoon. Uh, say five o'clock. We'll be there. Merci bien, Jerry. Uh, wait. 
Who is that lady just getting into her car? The one who stood with you at the services? The lady? Oh, that is Miss Tufeld, Etta. Is she a neighbor? I don't believe I've... I've... No, no, no. She's the nurse, the school nurse. Miss Etta Tufeld. Lovely. Au revoir, chérie. Au revoir. It was past two by the time I got to the studio. To fulfill the obligation to fill in Boom Boom, I made a call to the music department and I set up the appointment. Then I just went out and I walked a lot. Uh, Mr. Blixen, uh, Niels. Oh, hello, Tibbet. Uh, thanks again for your good work on those comic books. Yeah, well, <laughs> I sure hope it helps you. <laughs> well, say, you, you produce mysteries. Surely you have an idea who done it. I mean, well, I mean, I, I don't mean to be frivolous. As a matter of fact, Tibbet, I have the oddest feeling I've known the answer all along. That someone told it to me. But I couldn't translate it. As though you uh, sort of peeked at the back of the book and then there was the solution. Only you had to read the whole thing to be sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Someone said something or it did something and it was all wrong. But I can't remember the circumstances. Well, perhaps you're uh, trying too hard. Probably. What were we just talking about? The, uh, the, the funeral? Uh-huh. What does the word funeral suggest to you? Hillsides. And, uh, hillsides? It was as though a camera shutter had clicked in my mind. There was the hill and the headstones and Schreiber under his wide black umbrella. And down the hill, dry beneath the canvas canopy, were Boom Boom and Miss Tufeld and the priest. Let's see. Phil and Andrade. Hayworth and Renee. And there was Bobby. And as suddenly as that, I had it. As clearly as a subliminal flash held too long, certain and complete and shadowless, I knew the killer. Sickened, I closed my eyes and thought, no, my God, no. Just when you need it more than ever, you can find it more places than ever. That's Quaker State Motor Oil. Why do you need it more? Because if you're using your car less, that engine just isn't getting the exercise it needs. But Quaker State's quality protection is tailor-made to handle deposits that build up in an underworked engine. Now that you need it more, it's available more places. Nice to know. Quaker State, your car, you keep it running, yeah. It looks like tomato juice. It's V.A. What you got there? It's V.A. Looks like tomato juice. It's V.A. Try it. Wow. It sure doesn't taste like tomato juice. Mm -hmm. It tastes like V.A. A great natural blend of eight garden vegetables. V.A.'s cocktail vegetable juice. V.A.'s. The Zero Hour continues after this. Yes, huh? ये खानदानी मंसूबा बंदी का मरकज है just in the United States, there are nearly 5 million women who have no way of getting modern family planning help. And that's nothing compared with the world problem. 
Some countries don't have enough family planning centers. Some don't have any at all. This year, again, many women will have babies not because they want to, but because they have no choice. Sad for them. Sad for the world. With family planning help, these women, too, will have babies only when they choose. So that all the people of the world may have this freedom of choice, support planned parenthood. I didn't know whether I said goodbye to Tibbet or not. I raced back to my office, told the substitute secretary to get a hold of Wade Schreiber and tell him to get right over it was about Miss Redfern. And I wanted the phone number of a Miss Etta Tufeld, school nurse at Hollywood High. Then I got hold of a studio transportation man I'd known for years, and I had him drive me out Highway 2 through Glendale to La Cañada. After that, on the way back, I stopped at a phone booth on the road, called Sergeant Ames and told him what was up. At 5.40, when I got back to my office, there was a message on the desk that Schreiber had received the call, and Miss Tufel's phone number was there. Hello? Miss Tufeld, this is Nils Frederick Blixen. You probably don't know my name. Oh, indeed I do, Mr. Blixen. You were at the cemetery today. Uh, Mrs. Hayward pointed you out to me. Miss Tufeld, I need some information about Heidi Ellis's movements last May 15th. Now, that was a school day, a Tuesday. Heidi told me she'd reported sick to you and that you'd sent her home. Tuesday, yes. Yes, uh, I remember. I certainly did send her home. At about what time? Do you recall? Um, yes. That would have been about 1.30. I thanked her. I made one more phone call to a drugstore. I asked one more question and hung up. And then just sat there, idly moving a herd of ceramic hippos around my desk. Then I involuntarily got up, walked to the door, and opened it. In my outer office, Boom Boom and Fred, still in their funeral finery, were on the couch reading the trade papers while their nephew, Phil, stood braced sadly against the hall jam like an abandoned dress dummy. They had come by to report on Phil's job interview with the music department. I invited them in and scrounged up soft drinks without ice. Mon chéri, you are fidgety. Why is this? Miss Redfern's going to be released. She's innocent. Oh, the police suspect someone else, then? They do now. Of which murder? Of all three. The same person committed all three. <gasps> and you know who it is? I know. You see, the thing that threw everybody off was that Gladstone was killed first. That was a mistake. Heidi was the threat. Sherry, the little girl... Think back to the 15th of May. Heidi got sick, came home from school. Uh. Nobody was home, right? Then Heidi said Dan Gladstone came by. But she didn't tell anyone about a third person who was at the house that afternoon. A child molester. <gasps> no. Gladstone was in the back somewhere, probably near the garage. He may have heard Heidi call out. In any event, he came around front and possibly saw what was going on. It's a sure thing the molester saw him. And ran. Heidi knew the man? She knew him. And she knew how to make him bleed. She'd seen the effect of one anonymous letter on Red and Gladstone, so she decided to send another. She cut out an article about a fictional child molester called M and mailed it. When the man got the letter, he assumed Gladstone had sent it. 
It wasn't hard to get Gladstone up on the hill and kill him. Just leave a message with his landlady that Red wanted to meet him in their favorite spot, something like that. And then a gun, one shot, and M was safe. Except a day later, another anonymous letter arrived. And this one asked for $300 a month for life. And he knew it was Heidi he had to kill. He called her. He probably told her he wanted to discuss terms. She unlocked the door and she let him in. Oh, but you killed her with an axe. Oh, no, he didn't. He probably used a pair of pruning shears or a small handhold, like the one you were using in the roses, Bobo. But Dan Gladstone must have seen the other car when he goes up to Ruby Drive. Didn't he notice? It was the kind of a car that no one ever suspects. Driven by someone everybody talks to and nobody notices. The scene in my outer office, except for Wade Schreiber thumbing through a magazine, might have been a replay of an earlier scene. There were detectives Ames and Griswold talking by the files. And there was the sunset cab driver on the couch, flipping his cap absently between his knees. Oh, hi, Mr. Blixen. <laughs> Take your time. I'm a little early. Wait, if the police withdraw their charges against Red tonight, can she be released immediately? It's in the works, Mr. Blixen. You found the proof then, Sergeant? One of my men just phoned. Found the bloody pants, the shirt, and the gun. <laughs> the gun? You found the gun that killed Gladstone? Yep, and Mary McGrath. Oh? Uh, where? In your garage. And Firestone tires on your cab. <laughs> hey, what? Is this a joke? <laughs> All sunset cabs use Firestone. You're under arrest, Mr. Bartholomew. You have the right to remain silent and the right to consult an attorney. If you... Hey, wait a minute. What is this? Some kind of gag? Tell him it's a gag, Mr. Blixen. It's no gag, Jack. I drove out to Glendale this afternoon up Highway 2 to Montrose. And I found the Japanese nursery you used to work in. The owner told me you went to jail for a year for child molesting. That's why you lost your job there. On Tuesday, May 15th, you answered a call for a cab at Hollywood High, placed by the school nurse. It's on the record. You drove Heidi Ellis home, you walked her to the house, and you attacked her. The next time you saw Heidi, you killed her. Last Monday at around 6 o'clock. They'll probably find the shears or whatever you use stuck away in your gardening equipment. Six o'clock. Mr. Blixen, you're my witness. I was here at six to pick you up. No. You got to the studio at 6.15, Jack. Baloney, I got here at six. 6.15. At six o'clock, it hadn't started raining yet. I, I know it. And that's why I'm sure I'm in the clear. Remember when the cat ran under your car? That's what really started unwinding this thing for me. I went to a funeral this morning, and a canopy over the grave had kept the ground dry. Your cab should have kept your parking place dry, but it was wet. You got there after the rain had started, after 6.15. You killed Dan Gladstone when you thought he was blackmailing you about the attack on Heidi. Then you had to kill Heidi when you discovered it was she, not Dan, who had sent the letter. And to cover it all up, you had to kill Mary McGrath. Well, it was all put together. I was in a bar with Schreiber having a much-needed double on the rocks. I could see him in the phone booth talking fast and furious. And when he hung up, there was a smile on his face. Well, you're reinstated with a network. <sighs> Incidentally, 
I didn't quite get the cabbie's explanation about why he killed Mary McGrath. Well, it's very simple now that I understand it. He had just killed Heidi, and he needed an alibi, so he enlisted Mary's help. He told her Heidi was in the cab, waiting, some kind of surprise for her grandfather. And it would help if Mary would tell Alice she just phoned when he came into the office. He knew he'd have to kill Mary later. The problem was, when Ellis told Mary to call Heidi back, Mary played that pretty well, keeping him from talking. She made one mistake. I should have caught it then. She tapped the receiver bar several times, supposedly to attract Heidi's attention. And that's a mistake? You do that. And if you've placed the call, at least here in Southern California, you cut the connection as surely as if you'd severed the line. That was his alibi. I should have recognized it a long time back. Joanna Redfern was released from custody the 8th of June. And she was back to work three days later. The studio calmed down, and so did I, except for one thing. When Red came sweeping into my office, as usual, she knocked over an ashtray, and she bumped her knee on the sofa. She threw her arms around my neck. She kissed me on the forehead, on the nose, on the mouth, and on both eyes. Oh, good grief, I love you. Did I ever tell you that? Will you marry me, Red? No. We can go. No. Who is it, then? Wade? I love Wade, but it's certainly not Wade. I'm not going to marry anybody. You can't love both of us and not marry anybody. That's absolutely ridiculous. Why? I don't see why I can't love a thousand people. I do. I will. I'm still young. Bye, darling, and thanks for saving my life. A kiss on my forehead, and she swept out of the room. Still as inaccessible as an alpine flower. I sat down and I took all the little ceramic hippos on my desk and arranged them into a broken heart. <laughs> but I was smiling with love at my age. You are listening to Mutual's presentation of The Zero Hour. There's a disease in business today we might call spiritual schizophrenia. You see it in individuals who apply one code of conduct in their personal affairs and a quite different one in business or government. A belief seems to be that we are less responsible as individuals when we make business decisions, that business has a different code. When you think about it, that doesn't make sense. Profits are not the only gauge of business success. Business doesn't change the priority of values. We are born to the community of man first. The others are secondary allegiances. Make your personal morality work where you work and see the difference. The community of man, God's club, be an active member. This message has been brought to you by Religion in American Life in cooperation with this station. slowly, very, very slowly indeed, with no place to go, nothing much to do. The answer for millions of servicemen and women around the world has been the USO. 
For over 30 years, a place to come in, read, write letters home, listen to music, dance, have a hamburger and a shake. Most of all, a place to feel welcome. But there might not always be a USO, even though there are still two million servicemen and women who need it more than ever. There might not be a USO because there's not enough money to go around. USO gets no government funds. It depends entirely on your gifts to the United Fund, Community Chest, or local USO campaign. So please give. Our work isn't done. That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour. Charles Larson's Someone's Death. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days. At the same time, Monday through Friday. So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to the Zero Hour. Today's episode brought to you in part by Ford Motor Company, Quaker State Motor Oil, and V8 Juice. This is the Zero Hour on Mutual Radio. You have been listening to the Zero Hour. A presentation of the Mutual Broadcasting System in association with Hollywood Radio Theater. Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday and once again, rest your eyes. And listen here to the Zero Hour. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. <laughs>